0: And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Now, Danny is one of the founding members of House of Pain, and I'm sure many of you are aware of their music. However, his life story is so much more powerful than the music alone. So we discuss a host of topics from his early life, finding his way into hip-hop, addiction, recovery... The Outsiders, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for other people to find. And this is a free library of almost 600 episodes, so all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Danny Boy O'Connor. Enjoy. Danny, I want to start by saying thank you so, so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today.
1: My pleasure, man.
0: <laughs> so very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you on this fine day? I'm
1: in a uh, beautiful downtown Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, home of the greaser, and uh, I'm loving every minute of it. I uh, was born in Brooklyn, New York, raised in Los Angeles, I spent probably 48 Years of my life in uh, either the San Fernando Valley or Hollywood area, and I moved to Tulsa five years ago. And uh, it's the smartest thing I've ever done. So happy to be joining. <laughs> yeah,
0: oh, beautiful. Well, there's I know there's a hell of a story and there's a very powerful story of why you're in Tulsa. So I'd love to get that as we progress through. I'd love to start it. chronologically at the very beginning though. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings.
1: Yeah. So to my knowledge at the time I was born in Brooklyn, New York, uh, at two months old, we were evicted from our apartment. My father went to prison and we moved in with my grandparents who lived in Staten Island over the bridge from Brooklyn. I spent the first three years with my grandparents. And then my mother got married to another alcoholic. We moved maybe a mile and a half down the road to a projects, uh, called the tyson lane projects and it was you know it was tough it was when i lived with my grandparents it was it was it was fantastic because you know grandparents always kind of you know if they've if they've had any flaws in their own uh, raising of their children they kind of figure a way to make up for it on the grandchildren. So, uh, they, they took very good care of me and I loved every minute of being there. Uh, I did not love every minute of being in the projects. It was tough back then, New York in the seventies and the early seventies was a rough place. Um, a lot of people coming home from Vietnam, a lot of people's parents, you know, uh, there was a lot of, I remember as a kid seeing, you know, um, just people in the laundromat, you know, every building had like a laundry room, and people were in there getting robbed. They were waiting for women to come in with their money for the laundry money and rob them for that. Uh, I think people were getting pushed off the roof of the six-story building that we lived in, and um, a lot of, you know, a lot of tough kids, a lot of Puerto Rican kids, a lot of tough Irish kids, a lot of tough Italian kids, and uh, it just was a, a completely different than you know being. Uh, <laughs> just uh, the golden child at my grandparents' house a couple of miles away, you know? So, uh, but it was all I knew. And, you know, I have two siblings. I did not know I had an older brother until I was about 20 years old, which we'll get to, I guess, I'll, I'll tell you how that happened as we move forward. But at the time, I, I only knew that I had a stepsister through my stepfather. And then uh, I, we stayed in New York till... I was six years old and we moved to California. My mother was a key punch operator at the Chase Manhattan Bank. So the first few years of my life, I didn't really look at her or understand that that was my mother because she worked nights and slept in the days. And as a, obviously as an infant, I was up in the days and slept at night. So I would really only see her barely on the weekends. And for people who don't know, uh, key punch operating is, is, it predates computer programming. It is technically computer uh, maybe not programming, but they used to have index cards. And then on those index cards, there were divots punched out, um, you know, square or rectangular divots. And uh, you would insert those into this computer, and it would then, by the placement of those digits, I mean, uh, yeah, the, those holes punched, it would know whatever you were trying to tell it to do. So late nights at the Chase Manhattan Bank, that's what she was doing. She left for L.A. because her brother was also a computer programmer and Los Angeles at the time was the hotbed for all of that activity. Uh, she ended up in the aerospace portion of it It's a, 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 at Lytton, and she worked on the guidance systems for our nuclear arsenal or the defense systems against Russians, uh, the Russian uh, nuclear arsenal, that Star Wars program. I don't know if you remember that, but there was a Reagan the Star Reagan. Wars yeah. program. <laughs> so yeah so she wrote a she wrote in a language that's no longer uh used anymore ironically during uh y2k they brought her back for like triple the pay that she was making at any other time to try to fix the y2k because the language that they wrote was called cobalt and it's no longer it's just not a computer language anymore so anybody who knew it would be you know of a certain age and they were trying to fix the 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 y2k clock problem but uh as we know, that wasn't as big as a problem as we we thought it was. And, you know, I, I share this often because I'm in recovery and, you know, um, my grandparents' life was great. When I moved in the apartment with my mother and my, my stepfather, they were, they were, he was drunk a lot. He was violent. Um, but it was kind of all around me in the projects. And I just thought, okay, this is the next part of life where it's tough and it's uncomfortable and scary. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of you know, there was a lot of that around me at the time. And so when we moved to California when I was six, unfortunately for my stepfather, he dies pretty soon after that. He died at 35 of cirrhosis of the liver. So I can't imagine. And, and this is coming from a recovered alcoholic addict, the kind of drinking you'd have to do to die at 35. But I, I saw some of the drinking as a kid. I remember my mother. Uh, well, he would walk me to school in the morning and then he would stop at the liquor store. He would come out with a, uh, a pint of milk and a bottle, and then he would he would come up close to me and said, "I'm you know don't tell your mother I'm drinking milk." I said, "All right, yeah, yeah, no." I said, "Remember, don't tell her I was drinking milk." And as a I don't know like a five year old kid, that's like such a weird request, you know? All right, I won't tell her. And then what he would do is pour his fifth of whatever he was drinking into that milk carton with the milk, and then drink it, throw it up drink it, throw it up. And by the third or fourth time he would drink it and it would go down and then he could get right. You know, he's he was a real alcoholic and he could stop shaking and he could get well. And that's what he did to get well. And then when I would come home from school, my mother, the first thing she would ask me is, was, was Richie drinking milk? And I'm like, I didn't know what to do, you know, cause I was scared of him and I was scared, you know, and I, and I didn't know what to tell her. I don't know. I don't even remember if I told on him or if, or if I did it was, always, it was always awkward. I think I probably cried. And then they just she couldn't get an answer out of me because it was just scary times. Um, and looking back, obviously, like I said, I described what I know, now know it was a full blown alcoholic who was every day had to try to get a few drinks just to sit down in there to get him to just to be able to be semi functional, which is a, it's a, such a tough way of, of living. And it's unfortunate that he didn't find recovery. But you know, it's scary when you're a kid. It's, it's not, it's yeah. You know, and I've even, you know, I brought it up to my mother once. She started crying about it. I'm like, you know, that it just as an adult now, I can't imagine putting kids in, in, in the care of, of that, you know, in the, the hands of that. But again, you know, I got to have some empathy for my mother too. She was probably 23, 24, late twenties at best. And I think to myself when I was late twenties, which I felt, you know, those, those are not some of my finer moments and those at that, that age and the decisions I made were based off of, you know, fear or selfish, you know, uh, things that I was trying to do. And so I have, I have empathy, but you know, I, there's part of me that's, you know, I, I thought maybe I'd be a parent at, at, by this point, I'm not a parent at this point. Um, but if I was a parent at this point, I would definitely have all of the, uh, the necessary life lessons and just all the, the instruction would be simple. Just do the exact opposite of what my parents did. And uh, it would that would be a pretty good uh, roadmap for success. So anyway, uh, you know, it I, I think it made me who I am. Uh, it, it made me, uh, you know, tough where I needed to be tough. Sometimes uh, that muscle was overworked and uh, later in life, recovery and and sobriety and some humility would uh, soften me up a bit. And uh, I feel like at this point, you know, I I found what I was looking for in that area. But, yeah, it was a tough life. So when we finally get to California, it was culture shock. Um, I was stuck in military school for a year, which was overwhelming. The, The curriculum at third grade was so high that I wasn't even ready for it. I got held back that year. Um, I went to public school the next year and was a straight A student just for that maybe the first semester because <laughs> the curriculum prior to that was so hard and 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 you get they would give you swaps if you if you if you got demerits and stuff like that. They would literally every Friday they'd pull all the kids in that didn't shine their shoes or didn't have the uniform straight or weren't turning in homework and they would literally give you the paddle wow and it you know it was it, 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 it's scary too when you're a third grade kid, you know so by the time I got to public school um you know it, it was a lot a lot more uh easier on me but I was never a good student I I feel there's there's definitely a learning disability that I have um I um I'd always be the class clown or try to get people to laugh or always do things for approval I feel like I never got the approval I was looking for at home and so I I, I look for that in in other situations and maybe that's still true of me. you know I I I don't know if that ever changes. I know it's a driving force. Um, and in, in a lot of the endeavors that I took on it, it was always something in a public light or something that people would be like, wow, that's cool. You know, then would be to do behind closed doors and nobody ever know, but that on the and I'm thinking out loud on spitballing spitballing here, but I think the things that happen behind closed doors are people that are, the, the aptitude is more fit for that. I, I'm more in, uh, in front of the camera if you will than behind the camera you know so uh, yeah but so life was you know it, it, life for me i, I don't want to sing a tale of whoa my mother did the best she could um we were never poor uh we were always middle class sometimes lower middle class sometimes just middle class um there was always kids that were poor my there were friends that i had that were way poorer than me and there were friends that we had in california that were way richer than me um, I think when we moved to California uh, after being there, you know, after I started to, you know, my early teens, I started to realize that everybody had like a different, um, you know, some people were rich, some people were poor, some people, you you start, the, the pack starts to separate, you know, some people's bicycles were better, some people's clothes were better, some the handheld like little Pac-Man things started coming out or, you know, the Nintendo systems or whatever, and some people's family could afford them with not a problem and some had to wait a year or two before they could, you know, the prices came down and got them and it's at that point where I started to feel a little uncomfortable uh selfish uh, uh self you know um aware of that and then feeling less than um and it's right about that time that I see the outsiders i um I always credit that movie with kind of like affirming that if the best life ever gets is a, is, a, is a pack of friends that have your best interests in you theirs a few denim jackets, a pack of cigarettes, and we sneak into the, the driving theater that if that's the best life gets, that I could live with that. You know what I mean? And so I carried that for a long time, um, you know, with me, that vibe, that Dallas Winston, Matt Dillon character vibe, uh, just, you know, get tough on one side and, and and nothing can touch you. And then having the empathy that Johnny Cade had in The Outsiders, if you know the book or movie. But, uh, and then the only thing I think I'm skipping over, which was a tremendous gift that at the time I didn't realize how important a role it would play in my life. But that stepbrother that I had, he had a wonderful brother, uh, my uncle Mickey and his wife, my aunt Edie and two kids at the time. They had another kid later um, and they would take me every summer. I would fly out to New Jersey to meet them. They were from Staten Island or Brooklyn originally, then Staten Island, then New Jersey. And I would fly out every summer to meet them because my mother just couldn't handle two kids, and she would be at work all the time. And she, she would fly me out there, and then we would drive in the station wagon from New Jersey all the way to Springfield, Missouri, which is literally, like, the center of the U.S. And my aunt came from a farm. And along the way, they would stop at, like, Thrift stores, antique shops, um, flea markets—they were—they were in search of coffee grinders. They were in the coffee business. And they were looking for antique coffee grinders. But as kids, we were looking for comic books and baseball cards and fatigues and patches from the military. Would be—you know the, these were these were exciting uh, trips for us. And I think it made me roadworthy from a young age. And I was always fascinated with just life on the road. And I'd get to a different hotel in a different city in a different town. And we turn on the TV and the commercials were different. And some of the products were different. You know, in LA, we didn't have Mellow Yellow, which was a soda you could find in the Midwest. We didn't have uh, Entenmann's and Devil Dogs that they had in New York, but they didn't have them. And then vice versa, we had some stuff in LA that they didn't have. And I just realized, like, this, I was comfortable in the, in the constant, motion and traveling uh thing i I was a sponge for all of that stuff and i think by the time i got into the music uh business uh there were some people that were in other groups that that are our contemporaries and and some of those guys kind of pulled out of touring for a long time because they just hated being on the road but that was never my my story so i look back at those very fun those years as like kind of the thing that saves me you know because i and oh oh and also by going back and forth every summer until I was about 13 or so. Um, this is pre-internet, pre-cell phones. Obviously, I'm 53 years old, so this is in the 80s, early 80s. Um, music and television and movie influences are different, man. And, and I always I always say I was bringing Oingo Boingo and Fishbone uh, tapes back to New Jersey with me, and I was coming home with Curtis Blow, Run DMC, and, and Grandmaster Flash. and um, at the time there were, there were big differences, you know, there was skateboard and, and surf culture in LA and I was dressing like every other kid, which was OP vans and lightning bolt. And then coming back from that summer with maybe a pair of pumas and, and, a, and, and some lead denim, just trying to emulate that New York hip hop look and spending a lot of uh, of my time, you know, listening to radio that we could get in New Jersey that was playing a little bit of R and hip hop at the time. And it made me a, It made me kind of like a wizard on both coasts amongst the 12 year olds, if you will, because I knew a lot about stuff that they they wouldn't hear about until a couple of years later or on a movie soundtrack or whatever. So it just kind of I felt like I was at the epicenter of both of the that that new wave slash hip hop era as it was starting. And I always felt a, a kinship to hip hop because in my heart, I'm a New Yorker. Uh, till I die. Even though I spent the majority, a vast majority of, of my life in Los Angeles, I, I've always been a fan of the Yankees. I've always been in love with anything that's been like seventies or eighties, New York, or even before that, but that era in particular. Um, and so, and then going back every summer in New York, New Jersey area, um, I just would soak up as much as I could that summer and then and carry that with me until the following summer. And then, you know, by the time I'm 20, we're signed to a New York label and we're going back and forth coast to coast. But it was like I like to call it a poor man's Glenn E. Friedman uh, experience. And if you don't know who that is at home, uh, Google that name, you'll be shocked. It's one of the most prolific uh, photographers to ever do it. And he definitely covered at 14. He was covering the Dogtown skateboard scene in its infancy here in California. He, was, he covered the D.C. punk scene. He's done most of your favorite record covers, whether it's Public Enemy or, or Minor Threat or Bad Brains or whatever. He just he, he's lived probably uh, a hundred lives. Most photographers don't get a fraction of what he's got accomplished. But he just happened to be the, the right place at the right time for three different major scenes, the hardcore punk scene in New York and, and, and D.C., the skateboard uh, surf Dogtown, venice santa monica scene early on and then all of the early hip-hop stuff through def jam uh, incredible uh eye uh, and incredible talent and i i feel like I, I was seeing all of the stuff he was doing as a kid going back and forth being like hip to all that shit uh way before a lot of people were at least in my circle so i always you know called it just that but uh yeah it was a good thing you know looking back and even as i tell you this you know there's no there's no real story of whoa you know i made a lot of bad choices moving forward and uh it ended me up in a lot of a lot of shit and then i've I've done a lot of things since then to recover so
0: well firstly thank you for laying that out um it it parallels so many other people that have been on here and one thing i see A lot of times there's an inception almost of like the World War II era, you know, that I think myself included, a lot of us have this romanticized image of all our vets coming home, ticker tape parades, they're all happy, they roll up their sleeves and they go to work. Behind the scenes, as I talk to more and more people, you realize that no, that's not the case at all. And then you fast forward another generation, now you're starting to seal that that kind of second generation of trauma, and then you've got broken homes and you've got, you know, abuse in the in the household you've got single mothers who aren't seeing their children because they're trying to you know pay the bills so w- was that were you ever able to find out kind of the generation before maybe what caused your dad's road to prison what caused your stepfather's road to addiction
1: you know I, I i never did and i don't that's a it's a good question but it seems to me i don't know much about my father's family i i but i i've met a few of them online to, Facebook is a a strange and interesting place and some of them seem well adjusted and, and, and fit. And some of them crazy like me and on my stepfather's side, they were, like I said, his brother, uh, they have a, he had a great life. You know, they may have had a beer or two, but they knew when to put it down or at least it didn't, you know, I didn't see any alcoholism on that side myself. Um, so I don't. Yeah, what just what I'm echoing what you're saying is 100 percent true in my my thing. I don't know prior to that. I'm sure, I'm certain on the O'Connor side that alcoholism runs through the that family lineage lineage, and some brothers and sisters did better than others. So, but I don't know in in detail enough to answer that question. And I, I would love to know. Listen, I knew my father was a, was a career criminal, and and I have a lot of friends. Uh, a handful of friends on NYPD and I said, can you look up to, so I can have a better picture of what kind of stuff he was doing? And they couldn't. And they said it was before those records got rolled into the digital thing and a lot of things. And he was, you know, he, he was a lot older than my, mo- well, you know, a decade older than my mother. My mother's probably in her mid seventies now. So you know, it's going back to a time where a lot of those stuff, and then he was, he was murdered when I was 17. He was homeless by the time he was going in and out of prison in and out of the, uh, you know, homelessness and, uh, somebody for fun. Actually it's ironic. And I, and I say this a lot and then, you know, uh, he was killed unfortunately for no reason, but to, for somebody, I guess to have get their kicks, but, uh, the, the, pol- the police chief's son of Staten Island decided to light a bum on fire that happened to be my father. So he was burnt alive when he was homeless. Um, I'm an advocate for the Second Amendment. I believe that, you know, my constitution guarantees me the right to bear arms and protect myself, my family, and my loved ones. And I, as much as I, you know, despise the act that 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 person did, I'm not anti cop. I'm not anti-gasoline. I'm not anti-matches. You can kill somebody in so many ways or do destruction in so many ways. What I am is like anti-ignorance and and anti-like those kind of actions. I don't know what kind of mind state you got to be in to do that. That being said, you know, there's some stuff, obviously not, you know, to that level, but I've done a lot of stupid things in my life looking back that seconds and inches away from Sheer disaster for somebody else, for myself, for everybody involved, uh, and so I really, you know, it's a tough one. But uh, yeah, you know, it's funny that you brought the the broken home thing up. You know, I I, I talk to people all the time um, I, because of the position I have now with the museum and 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 being in recovery, and it's tough for me. You know, as much as I love hip hop and and what it's done. Uh, The the effect it's had a wonderful effect on my life, but there's also a negative side of it that doesn't get discussed a lot, and it's it's heartbreaking really because all of the stuff that can end you up, all of the all of the professions, let's just call it the streets, right? It's not even hip hop alone, but hip hop glorifies all the stuff that as a as a 53 year old adult, adult who's turned the corner on all of that stuff that I despise, you know, if you're in the streets and you're a thug you're a pimp you're a pusher you're uh, whatever you know, like those those occupations are held on high you know what i mean any other place that, that's not only a prison sentence it's like the worst thing you could be and as a young kid i gravitated to that mindset and i feel because i didn't have anybody at home and any uh, telling me that shit and then when i would hear stories about my father and him being the thug and him being a, you know, a gangster and, or a tough guy or whatever you want to call it. I, and then add all of the, you know, watching Scarface as a kid or, or all of the movies, I just gravitated towards outlaw culture and street culture. And, you know, it's really, it's, it's a, it's a double-edged sword because it's like, I'll always love the rebel, you know what I mean? I'll always have and that's really what people love about the American spirit is what we're rebels and that there's that undercurrent of that. But when you really are in that life, man, it's like it's jails, institutions, or death. You know, there's nothing cool about it. And I I bought into it hook, line, and sinker, you know, and and, and it cost me dearly for a long time. And it, you know, it served me when I was younger. You know, I didn't need a lawyer or or somebody to look over my contract because if they went bad, I, you know, I'm just going to do you in. You know, there's no the threat of that. Like, hey, if you do me dirty, they'll be held to pay. People understood that. And that's cool in your 20s. If you can, you know, if you can get away with it as you get older, you realize that, that ain't that ain't it. And so it's tough for me now, man, um, as much as like I said, and this is it just is what it is. And I don't care what anybody, you know, in. You know, hip hop or the culture or the streets think about this shit because it's just the way it is for me. Um, I think a lot of things could have been different if there was a man in the family who was sober and um, took the role of a father or, or my father was actually just did what a father should do as opposed to, you know, but they were both, both stepfather, my father were sick people, you know, they were, they had an illness and they didn't, obviously they didn't understand that there was a solution for it or they didn't want the solution or I don't, who knows, but, uh, it's pretty, it's, it's, it's easy for me to look. And I meet a lot of families, man. I meet a lot of kids and you can see the ones that from broken homes, that there's something's different about them. And it, it just, it it, it it the chances are and i don't know the averages but i'm guessing that the chances are a lot better if you have a the the nuclear family unit intact and especially if they they give a shit um i think your chances are better if you don't my advice is to get a good education and to you know keep your nose clean you know because as far as i'm concerned you know if there's systemic anything in the system, it, it's all based on your FICA score. Get a good, get a good uh, credit score. People, when they're coming to sell you a house or loan you the money, they don't care your you're black, white, or pinstripe. They just want to know what your credit score is and really what, what your worth is. And there's no way better. For me, I always, and this is, I'll tie it together. But for me, no matter how well I do, I'll always have a healthy fear of homelessness and the only thing that will keep me uh, guaranteed for, for the most part, never to experience homelessness again is to stay sober and, and to work hard. So that's what I do for that. I think if there's anything to keep me uh, keep doing better in society, it's be a good guy and make sure your credit is intact because really it's hard to move. If you have a bad, you know, if you're, if you're not on point with that, I got a ninth grade education and my credit score fluctuates between the high 700s to the low 800s. That's not bad for a guy who was physically, morally, and spiritually bankrupt, and definitely came into recovery in debt. And so, um, slowly but surely, one foot in front of the other, I've been able to to write those things. And so, if if yeah, if there's news for anybody who doesn't know, I wish my father or my stepfather would have knew that there was that 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 recovery is possible, and and I'm living proof of that. So
0: yeah well and you talk about the the kind of the theme that joins all of us, whether it's you know gangs you know murdering each other, whether it's addiction or suicide or you know domestic violence or you know whatever, including deciding that you're going to light a homeless man on fire the that's the underlying thing to me is mental ill health, you know that's what we all suffer from, no matter what your skin color or your religion if you if you're going through that dark place and it can be homicide it can be suicide, it can manifest in so many different ways. But that's a discussion and what's so powerful when I get to talk to you and all these different people of all backgrounds. You know, some are elite, you know, war fighters and some – I had a guy who was a, a boy soldier in Sierra Leone who, by the way, was a huge hip-hop fan. So that's the power of music. I was a little farm boy in England, huge hip-hop fan. Um, but yes, but that's the conversation I think that needs to be had. I mean, you you know, you the war on drugs, the, you know, the war on gangs, it's, it's not working if you're not fixing – children you're not stopping the machine that is creating traumatized children that are giving no you know positive role models that are then fumbling their way through some become astronauts and they're incredible but many of them find themselves in a much darker path
1: the, the hard part is you as you say that I you know I agree but then there's that part of like some kids can play you know video games at nauseum and never decide to do anything crazy right and some people can listen to hip-hop and never decide to join a gang or go sell drugs or, or you, whatever. Unfortunately, if I'm to believe I'm hardware, right. And the software that I put in there was telling me, you know, all of the stuff that I was reaffirming, all of the street stuff that I was interested in. And so I'm not suggesting that people don't love hip hop or listen to hip hop or watch Scarface or watch, whatever movie you know some shoot 'em up shit uh i just think that the way i grew up it 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 was a sort of it was i definitely feel like i suffered some post traumatic stress and i feel like it was all fear based because i never had the stability at home and i was always warned or reminded that this too uh can change at any time uh there was a lot of threats to just be shipped off to boys' homes. And I also remember feeling, you know, the, the, the fear that my mother uh, projected that she was living paycheck to paycheck. And, and it was not easy and it was stressful. So there was always that instability thing. And then as a young kid, I start to see, like, the cocaine era starts to hit. And everybody who's, like, you know, in high school, I knew a lot of kids that were starting to sell, you know, Small amounts, but big amounts, if any amount is big, I guess, at the end of the day. Uh, But, you know, less than an ounce, I'd say, at at first, but weekly. And they got nice clothes, and they got pagers, and they got Kangles, and gold chains, and and in hip-hop, that was everything. And there was no way I could even work a job that would pay that kind of money to afford me those things. And I was so obsessed with having those things that I was willing to do whatever it took to, to feel a part of that and uh i don't know that normal kids do that right i think they look at it like anything else it's entertainment yeah it's a, it's a, it's about you know whatever the rah-rah shit but they don't maybe try to emulate that to the 10th power i unfortunately did and you know looking back like i'm not proud of that you know I, i'm w- when i got here um I was at a restaurant, and they were giving me a lot of press when I first came here, which I hadn't had that kind of press since, like, the early days of House of Pain. Um, and two kids, they might have been 12 years old. They were, like, hovering around the, the table. We are like, at some burger joint or something. And the kids finally come up to me, and they said, Mr. O'Connor? And I was like, oh, wow, here we go. Like, this, you're that young calling me Mr. O'Connor. I, now I feel old. But they said, are, are you you – are you him? Are you the guy from the Outsiders House Museum? And I got this big smile, I said, absolutely. They said, hey, we just wanna thank you for doing what you do. And it was the first time like strangers had had thanked me. And I tell you that to tell you that it was refreshing not to be Danny Boy from House of Pain. It was, are you Mr. O'Connor from the Outsiders House Museum? And that, I felt like the, the page had been turned uh, and that was proof of like my new life could ensue. And although I'll always be proud of being from House of Pain and what we did and, and, uh, you know, uh, everything that encompasses that, uh, it was nice to be like, okay, this is real now. I'm moving forward with the with the second phase of my life, which is, you know, started at 50. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. No, and I can imagine how powerful that must be. And I want to get to the, the kind of House of Pain journey. But just before we do. It, just to mirror kind of what you say what you've said, it's something I've discussed on here a few times. Like being this little farm boy and and loving hip hop, I still found myself drawn towards the positive one. Like that was the message that I'm like, okay, well this relates. I mean, I'm standing in a field full of sheep, so it's not quite, you know, South Central LA, but um I you know, drawing drawing the kind of pull yourself up, you know, the the this the very positive message that came out of it. Um But I've kind of highlighted this point. If you look back at, you know, for example, Ice Cube with Fuck the Police or Ice-T with, you know, Cop Killer. Cop Killer, sure. The the irony now, you know, they're both making a lot of money playing cops on television. Of course. For me as a 48-year-old man who's also matured and spent a whole career in the fire service watching the real, you know, behind the curtain of gang violence and addiction and, you know, prostitution and all these things that we get to witness and scrape off the floor – it was, to me, it's like, well, where are these voices, these these older voices of hip hop that are saying, "Look, we got to change the storytelling." Yes, there are some things that are a reality here, but if it's like um, it's projection, we're going to keep it this way if we keep talking about it. When are the ones saying? Look, I get it that back then we made this money, and you know that was kind of what we were thinking. And well, yeah. to be honest, it sold records and it made us money. However, you know, I love the the gurus and the nazis and all those that are, you know. Putting the positive stuff out there. And I just cringe when I see male or female with this, just, you know, feeding the fire of your. you're going to be stuck in the <laughs> I lip. mean, I
1: can't imagine if I had a daughter and she was listening to the WAP. Or, you know, exactly. that kind of, I would be like, what the, but again, we had that stuff too. So it, it's one of those double-edged swords, man. It, you know what? You, you ask, where's the guy? Uh, uh, ironically, it's Kanye. I mean, Kanye says all of the right things. And people, you know, the the hood un- disowns them for half of it. But he's saying right shit. It's mindset. It's it's you know mental slavery. And 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 if you keep planting the same seeds, you're going to keep reaping the same harvest. You know. And and I, I, I again, this is not uh, the life on life's terms. Is that there'll always be that fascination with street culture, whether it's street culture that looks like outlaw bikers or street gangs or 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 it just whatever it, it could be. Uh, there's always the good and the bad of that. And and we'll always be fascinated with the underside of of, of any culture. I, I love Burroughs. I love I love the poets that talk about it. I just think hip hop was so solidified in that and it captured so many minds that it, it almost put like a you know in my mind it was okay it we keeping it real you can go too far you know what i mean and i'm not blaming it for anything listen i could get those same messages other places but you're right i don't know thinking out loud other than kanye when kanye speaks it's so it's so out there that it makes sense and it's not that it's like he he's like in touch with some other like but it, when you when you break down what he says, when you see, hear him on Joe Rogan, I heard him on TMZ even just and they were like slamming him for what he said. But I'm like, he, he makes sense. It's like he talks about all of that kind of stuff. He has a really good understanding of that, which is rare, especially at, at his level, to be in touch with God and to be in touch with not that, you know, other artists haven't been, but he can articulate it. It just seems like the streets don't want to hear what he's talking about. But I heard what he was saying. And I was like, man, not for nothing. I kind of mirror what, what, what you're saying in that, you know, he, he's, he's concerned. I mean, I think he's a little bit touched too, but sometimes he's, you ride that line of genius and insanity. And sometimes the stuff sounds insane, but a lot of new concepts or, or foreign concepts sound insane until they don't, you know what I mean by that? And so, yeah, I don't know, man. I, I don't blame, I, I blame hip hop for giving me a, a a, a good ladder for, for the foundation of a good life. It saved me in times. It was, I lived for hip hop music. I'm a B-boy until I die. And, and that I've been other things. I've been an outlaw biker. I've been a, a a new wave dude. I've been into mod and ska culture. I was like, I went through every phase as a kid, you know, a preppy, uh, you, whatever. And I don't, those are not me. Those are phases that I went through that are a part of me but I'll always be a B-boy, you know, for those at home that don't know what that is. That's uh, the original thing is a break boy, but it's a hip hop head from day one. It's like, I'm a B-boy. Like every, I still rock, you know, I still collect sneakers to a certain degree. I can still, when I sign my name, I tag it. And, you know, I love that, that I'm always going to be a small part of the hip hop legacy. And it's a beautiful thing. And hip hop is a beautiful thing. And there are a lot of people, but I gravitated to, stuff you're talking about nwa ice cube and just and and worse (laughs) we made worse la coca made worse and 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 as i started to reflect back on that i'm like we're talking crazy shit, and it's for mature minds man and if if a young kid starts to dabble in it which they always do you know it might it's easy for i could i could understand why because i did it it was to to not understand the boundaries of like reality and fantasy or hyperbole and and you know, you know whatever. So enough about that. I just don't want people to come away thinking I'm bashing hip hop. Especially you know, uh, hip hop didn't make me. I made some hip hop. You know what I mean? With my friends and hip hop uh, embraced us and the fans embraced us and it was a stepping stone to other things. You know, uh, and it's a big part of my life. It really the, 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 the professional part of it only lasted about six years. Uh, my involvement prior to that was probably maybe close to a, uh, around a decade, which felt like forever when you're young, you know, I was in hip hop around 14 years old, 13 or 14 um, since definitely since, uh, you know, rappers delight, but that solidified when Curtis blow and, and grandmaster flash started putting out those singles and from then on, I went through those other phases, always bringing hip hop with me. When I was a mod, I still listened to a lot of hip hop. Um, I just felt those other s- subcultures—they weren't vast enough, and there wasn't enough of us to really, you know, take it too far. And with hip hop, it was—I it felt like there was enough room for endless expansion, if that makes sense. And so, and you know what? We were definitely part of that punch in your face type of hip hop. That's the type of music we listened to. That's the type of music we made. And, uh, and, and it's what we're known for. But if I have any re- regrets, it's that, you know, maybe I echoed a lot of those stereotypical uh, bullshit glorifications of shit that's not really cool anymore. It's not cool to punch people in the face anymore. Uh, you know, it's not cool to, to be a criminal. It's not cool to do those things. And, and sometimes, you know, I felt like those were the only things that I could probably do because I didn't feel smart enough. I didn't feel talented enough. I didn't feel... Uh, and that, that, that's messaging that I, you know, was giving to myself. Nobody was telling me that I just felt that way. And, you know, I learned, uh, you know, a while ago that I don't have to believe everything I think, you know, and that, that's also pretty powerful stuff because just because I think it doesn't mean I have to buy it, you know, and, and, and to believe it. And my mind likes to go all over the place. And this is why, I'm you know, I, I, I meditate I do a gratitude list. I, I do a lot of, uh, service work, um, Because there, before the grace of God, go out. It's easy for me to forget uh, what I've been through, and it's easy for me to fall right back into it. And with long-term sobriety, I I can assure you this. This is just for me, but I've seen it in other people, so I won't speak for other people. But on the fifteenth of this month, I'll have seventeen years consecutive sobriety. uh, You know of consecutive sobriety, and when. Things happen, and you—if you're not in in a spiritually fit and in a good spot, and working the, the when when I'm not, I don't know what, what somebody else is, but when I'm not, I never think about relapsing and using uh, drugs or alcohol again. I think about putting one in my head, you know what I mean, and and saving the last bullet for myself. And that's how tricky this thing can get. You know, it's like whack a mole. I hit one down, and two other ones pop up that I didn't even know existed. So I have to be mindful, and I have to be very, uh, I, I make more meetings now, or I, I, people go with almost 17 years, why do you still need meetings? Because my head is still telling me all kinds of stuff, you know? And if I'm not working on myself on a daily basis, I'm in trouble, you know? And so I can, I can gloss over the house of pain thing. It was, uh, you know, in three easy, uh, little, uh, House of Pain was a godsend. I I was doing everything you would need to do from about sixteen till about twenty to end up in prison, whether it was credit card theft. We were we were reprogramming old credit cards before there was a chip in it. We were robbing and stealing. We were selling drugs, and I say we basically. I was and the, the people I was running with, and then I ran into Everlast, who I went to high school with and knew him from our area. I knew he was, I was a fan of his first record. Uh, that he had on Warner brothers when he was signing ice uh, I knew that that was over for him. And at the time when I called him, I hadn't talked to him in a while. I could hear his mother in the background throwing him out of the house as he was on the phone with me. And I said, dude, are you okay? And he's like, no, I got to find a place to live. My mother's freaking out. I said, I'll come pick you up. And he came to my spot. My spot looked like the Grinch's sled and we had stole so many shit and bought so much shit on uh, credit cards. He thought he was at like, yeah, just, in heaven. And, uh, I put some new clothes on him. I hooked him up with a bunch of CDs and, and, and put a, gave him a room in my cousin's house where we were all living. And, uh, we basically started to spitball and talk about putting a group together. And he loved the Irish thing that I was talking about. And he loved the logos that I was doing. I was always like doing a little graphic art and graffiti. And, um, before long we put a group together before long, he wrote three hits on a, on a demo. We got signed to Tommy boy records and we were off to the races. And, uh, It was fun, then it was fun with problems, and then it was just problems, just like my drinking and using was. And when it was good, the first album was great. We had great times. I got to see the world. We all got to see the world. We all got rich overnight. We all got semi-famous or celebrity status overnight. We made a big impact and it was good. And then the second album came out and it didn't live up to the the expected success. It was supposed to be bigger than the first album and it was not. I think some of that was conscientious choices that Everlast made not to do uh, a pop sellout song to, you know, retouch to the jump around thing. And he did a he did the album he he wanted to write and he was the writer. So it was up to him and we supported that. There was no I remember there was debates with we would take meetings and they're like we don't hear like a clear breakaway radio hit. And he was dead sent against doing that because it was at that time for white guys to be in hip hop and be respected you had to stay away from selling out you know that was like the biggest thing you could the worst mistake you could make was to do like a taco bell commercial or uh or just sell out and he was like i'm not selling out like that And so he just made a he made a good record the second record was cool and but it didn't do the numbers and by the third one we're all pointing at each other we're all going different directions we all are growing at different paces and we were all kind of like just not feeling each other and he tried to put two other dudes that we grew up with per se uh, in the group. And it was like two different groups. It might as well have been called Everlast with Friends, the third album. And it's uh, it's a highly re- highly regarded record amongst a lot of House of Pain fans. I don't love it because I just, there's too much like animosity associated with it, but I understand it is a good hip hop record. It's just not a House of Pain record, as far as I'm concerned, because there was very little of my anything in there. And in order to be House of Pain, it's gotta be the both of us. So that was that we broke up we didn't talk to each other for about a decade he went on to get grammys and and sell a million records lethal went on to producing some limp biscuit and joining the group and selling millions of records and i had no b plan and just started to do drugs to make it all go away so at the end of a couple about four years of downward spiral losing the house the cars the all of the trappings of a successful rap career i ended up um couch surfing you know at a girlfriend's house or I was living in an apartment small apartment with a girlfriend strung out on methamphetamines and it was uh one day on Ventura Boulevard in the valley that I ran into a guy that I knew was sober and he said you don't look so good I said I don't feel so good are you still going to those meetings he said he was and I said uh when can we go he said how about tonight and I took him up on it and uh it was a good run. I'll, I'll spare you the long story, but first year I did everything I was asked to do. I, I stayed sober the full year, could not believe it. Uh, life started g- giving me good uh, breaks again. I, I, year two, I made a solo record and got paid handsomely for it. Year three, the label falls apart. I started to, I spent all that money and I started to get the fuckets And I decided that, you know what, meth had ruined my life, but maybe drinking was still, something I could uh, uh do since I had learned so much about myself in those three and, and and a half years of sobriety. And so I decided to test it. The the program I worked, the 12 steps says if you don't think you're an alcohol into your inner core, go test it. Go go try some controlled drinking. So I thought, yeah, I'll take them up on that. And I did and it lasted about 72 hours before I was right back on methamphetamines. And that ensued I, I ended up going on a three year death march. Uh when it was all said and done, I was had a warrant for my arrest. My car had been impounded and sold at auction. My teeth were falling out of my mouth and I was living on a warehouse couch in Hollywood. And hopeless and uh, sick and tired of being sick and tired, homicidal and suicidal. And uh, I tried to go back and forth through the program. It just, I couldn't hear it anymore. My head was so clouded with drugs and and upset and depression. And finally, I just got a window of opportunity to take another meeting I don't know why this one worked, but I felt that there, if I didn't go to this meeting, it would be pretty much, you know, the last chance. So I went to the meeting and I, for the first time I got willing again, I thought I was before. And that, like I said, is uh, this 15th, it'll be 17 years ago that that happened. And this time I didn't want my old life back. I wanted a chance at a new life. I think the first sobriety I thought if I was a good boy, God would give me my old life back, which would have been the, that hip hop career and the, the, the Ferrari and the the big house and all that shit. And this time I just wanted a chance in a new life. And that's what I've been working on ever since. And uh, it hasn't been perfect life, life. It's been a lot of very high highs, but there's been a lot of low lows. You know, I, I, I've had businesses in between. I've, I've had businesses go bad. I've, I've been sued. I've been uh, fucked over. I may have fucked people over. I'm sure I did in some capacity throughout these 17 years. I was happily married. Then I got, uh, divorced. It wasn't on my, it wasn't what I was looking for. Um, and a lot of, you know, just life on life's terms is, is this way, you know, and, uh, but me staying sober and me doing the work, which is the 12 steps keeps me balanced and it keeps me prepared. And it's nothing that life can throw at me so far. And it's through a lot at me that, uh, you know, I just deal with it one day at a time and I, I take it as, as it comes. And I, I I find myself in the center of a pack of people who are all doing what I'm doing. They're doing the impossible. They 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 they're they're working every day on doing what they need to do to be spiritually fit to walk through life on life's term with grace and dignity. And so, by the men and women that have come before me, and that the people that I help that are after us, um, my deal is to. Uh, my deal is to always be of service.
0: we just going back to, to the height again. I don't want to drag you through the whole house of pain story, Hi. but, no but, um, one thing is this, you know, such again, another comment on it. I've done six, almost 600 episodes now. Um, and so there's some very resounding themes that come out of it. And there's always this kind of reoccurring thing of, of, of what you think will fill that void. What we'll think, you know, will give you that acceptance or that self esteem, yeah. especially when it's external, Getting to that pinnacle yes. and still being unhappy. I and mean, one of one of the guys um became a friend, Josh Brolin. I mean, he talks about his uh addiction and the steps that absolutely work for him, and he attends his meetings, he has, has funds with his meetings. But um, so there you are, you got this absolutely huge, you know, album. You you were talking about traveling and Ferraris. Was there any point where you felt fulfilled, or were you always kind of chasing that? And even no. if it was subconscious. Yeah,
1: no, there was a there was a few times, man, they were very Few and far between, and it, it, it uh, similar to smoking crack. <laughs> and I didn't smoke a lot of crack, but I, I have tried crack. And crack, unfortunately, the first hit is the one, you know, and everything after that is chasing this thing that just it'll never feel that good again until you get off of it for enough time and then retry it again. And then the first there were times where I thought if life just stayed this way, it would be euphoric. The right amount of money, the right amount of things. Um, I refer to that thing you're talking about as that God shaped hole. And no matter what I throw down it, don't fix it. Uh, and there's a million isms. Uh, if, if I've watched people, they get sober from drinking and using, then they start gambling and sex addiction, or there's a million different, you know, things that you shopping, uh, eating, uh, just people, we throw these things to try to make us feel better. I've also heard it described that uh, somebody said, Hey man, I never lost anybody. Uh, from experiencing the, the uh, fear, but I've watched so many people die trying to avoid the feelings and, and, and not deal with those things. And it really comes down to that. Um, that's why being spiritually fit in recovery is everything because there, you, you, that's what I did. Drinking was my solution. Using was my solution. My problem was life on life's terms if I could just have a little bit more of this, or you could just let me get paid for this forever, or if I could just have this amount of success, every record, you know, it was all conditional. If I could just have these cars, you know, I'd be good. And, and, and yeah, there's never, you get those cars and then you still needed two motorcycles and a a jet ski. It just never ends. And so it's an inside job. Anybody who's doing recovery will tell you it's an inside job. It's like the work has to come from inside is the outside stuff is great. but, and I'll, I'll always have a, a thing for shiny things. I just am not willing to go to the, the, the lace of, you know, insanity, what I used to, to have those things. And they don't define me as much as they did before. I'm going to be lying to tell you that I don't like things, and, and, but they don't, they change. As, as I grow and as, as years go by, less and less, I need those things less and less to really make me feel good. You know, they're more utilitarian at this point. But if I'm if I have to have them or if I want to have them, then I insist on having the ones that I want are the best. So I've I have less of the things that I, I'm interested in, but the ones that I do have, I try to make sure that they're the, they are the ones. But yes, you're absolutely right. And uh that was another appeal to hip hop. I mean, to be outwardly like gratuitously showing the wealth on the outside i mean everything is about appearance right like the all of the sneakers had to be top-notch the jewelry had to be truck it had to be oversized the everything was like an extension of your wealth and that it's a tricky one man you know because that kind of wealth is like i see it now in like youtube stars or tiktokers or whatever they're making ridiculous amount of money but a lot of rappers never especially in the golden era like you know you're looking at rappers that got big chains but that might be the 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 extent of their wealth you know hung up in a chain in the car and if you look at their career span and the records that they the numbers that they sold they're not what people are expected to sell nowadays right you know some of your favorite hip-hop acts maybe only went gold which is a million records like how long can you live off 80s record where you sold a million records in the 80s and you're not touring and because there's no real money for you to tour where do you get money like that anymore And that was, that was no different from us. You know, I got a million $1.25 million t-shirt deal, our first album, which was no that had to be, nothing had to be recouped. So it was like straight money into the bank. Um, So I made, you know, uh, I got an $800,000 advance on, on allowing a company to license the logo from me. And you know, it, yeah, it it fixes you at 20 something. (laughs) That kind of money sure does, but it's temporary. And, then spending it like it was going to keep coming every year was my, my, my mistake because it, it didn't come every year. It did not fall. It, it lasted about two years on an upward trajectory. And then it just drops off a cliff and the cliff is the part that you're like, Oh shit, not me. How could this be? You know? And then watch Cypress Hill keep going on. And I'm sure they had bumps in the roads, but visually, if you look at the arc, it's been nice. It's been kind of like a steady progression to the top. And then they've kind of just been on cruise at, you know, at cruising altitude for the better, and I'm sure there's a million things that I didn't see, you know, behind the everybody has that, but House of Pants, you can look and it goes straight up and it goes, and it comes crashing right down. And some of that is self-imposed and, 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 and uh, self-inflicted, you know. But uh, definitely it's not great for the psyche, and it's definitely not good for an immature, alcoholic addict with no real business acumen and no real uh, with a learning disability and not just and, and a lot of fear you know uh you, you you said something that stuck out to me you said how many episodes 600
0: uh, 600 yeah
1: yeah that's a lot of episodes and you can start to see obviously way before 600 but you will see you start to see uh you know anomalies right you'll start to hear a lot of commonalities and you're like wow you, it's, you have a really good sample size to see you know and and um you know, looking back, I see a lot of things like that too, and I forget where I was just going with that because my dog—he loves to be in my lap. I just adopted this dog two weeks ago, and he is the most uh, loving creature I've ever met. But I'm sitting on the bench, and he just almost fell off. Um, you, you start to see—you start to see things, and I—and I like that you have that kind of sample size to 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 see those things. And We were talking about God-shaped holes, and that's a very real thing uh, for people who suffer from those from, from the. The, the, the thing I suffer from. And it's, it's the thinking it's, it's my perception is skewed. What I'm looking at is what I'm looking through and what I'm looking through is distorted. And it's not what I was trying to say because I forgot what I was trying to say, but I'm going to, it, 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 it dovetails nice into what I'm going to say. Because even at 17 years, I still need you to tell me if I'm on point if I'm where I should be and I can't just run it by somebody who's like my buddy. who's not going to tell me, you know, the truth or he's just going to not going to hurt my feelings. So I have to really stay connected to the, to the people that are walking the path with me and I run stuff by people and, and I'm able to articulate better because I can't see things that you can see that I'm heading straight for at full speed. And when I get enough trust and faith, that there's something out there that also is looking out for me as long as I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, then it really, it's, it's, it it puts me in a center where I feel I belong and it connects me to God in that way that I don't feel any other way. So I believe in God and it's a big part of my story as I grew and grow, but I feel it most when me and you, and you don't even have to be uh, suffering from the same thing that I do, which is the, the, the mental, uh, uh, Affliction of of alcoholism and 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 using, um, but I I am able to find when I talk about this and when I discuss it with other alcoholics, addicts, or people like yourself. I don't know, you know your story in that way, but then I feel the hand of God in this conversation uh, and a, a power greater than ourselves. Because me and you together is a is, is a power greater than just me, right? And so as I force multiply. With people in the struggle that are working on the solution, that's powerful stuff. And it's, I have a better chance when I have the hive mind in this way to, to keep me centered. So anybody out there that's trying to do this alone, good luck. It's a tough one. And, and, and everything I have that's uh, good has come out of my sobriety, and it's contingent on, a, on my spiritual maintenance one day at a time. I don't think that was even what I was trying to tell you about House of Pain. Um, I can I, w- anything you want to know about House of Pain is great. Uh, I can fill in the blanks, but yeah, I don't. You know, kind of dovetail when my dog fell off
0: (laughs) no it was poor poor guy (laughs)
1: he was hanging on too he 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 didn't fall but he was hanging on his two things when i caught up anyway i hope any of that made sense no uh,
0: it did but also you hit on something that's very pertinent to a lot of people listening so the worst person to ask if you're doing well when you're a firefighter is another firefighter especially if they're on your crew in your station because you're getting your asses handed to you Shift after shift after shift. You're seeing the things that we see. You're sleep deprived. You're dealing with some of the politics in the, you know, the organization that you work for. And so this is something that's emerged, you know, again, we talk about commonalities, is the 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 people outside the bubble are the people that are. So the ones that you trust. So whether it's a family member, whether it's a close friend who's not in your circle some of you came up with who isn't in house of pain or touring with you and that that's such an important um kind of perspective because just like you said and i've had that too where i've been you know low as far as um never so much addiction but definitely you know depressive episodes is you hit the nail on the head i've talked about this it's like you're underwater like you're not you're not seeing and feeling clearly i've always tell people like my adrenal glands must have been pooped out years ago because i don't have feelings i don't have extremes but my wife, my son, those are some of the best people for me to ask, hey, how am I doing am through I doing? your eyes? Yeah.
1: yeah, no, I get it. Listen, my hat's off to you. My heart's with you. Anybody who's a first responder and in, in that that line of work is, is really my heroes. We have a guy, uh, Tim, who's on my board of directors at the museum who was at fire station three, which is in the neighborhood of the outsider's house. He's now moved midtown by the Harley Davidson dealership. But uh, I've been on ride alongs uh, with both LAPD and TPD and Tulsa fire department. And we just, you see a couple hour hours of to what your day looks like. And it's completely different than what you would see on television <laughs> where you're like, Oh, these good looking fire guys. They're eating. They've got good recipes at this firehouse. They're working out and they're, they're doing it. Like, Yeah, that may be a small part of it, but the stuff that you have to deal with, it's more than just putting out fires. It's dealing with car accidents, decapitation, shootings, stabbings, muggings, heroin addicts, methamphetamine addicts, just everything under the sun. You probably arrive there half the time way before the cops get there and have to sort everything out or stabilize somebody till the ambulance gets there or till the cops and the ambulance or whatever, whatever it needs to be done. And it's put a lot of uh, clarity on what you guys do worldwide, but and empathy as well, man, because that's a tough job, man. And, and, and you have to, you, you really have to have like a really good, I'm I'm guessing that you have to have some type of fucking stability and some type of like balance because you, you come into contact with a lot of stuff or you become completely numb and that's no good either. You don't want to be so desensitized to that, that you can't, you, you nothing, you know that that's also not so good. But my hats off, literally a figured to, to you, first responders, anybody who does that line of work, because you're underpaid, uh, underappreciated, and definitely uh, there's no there's nothing without you guys. And, and and you know so yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think firstly thank you, but I think you're you're right, and it's funny. I actually went back through your Instagram and saw that you had a fire right next to one of the buildings that we're going to talk about in a minute, and and they responded there. So there's that other tie-in. The person who connected us, NACO, Law Enforcement, L-A-N, um, NYPD. So another tie-in for, for our professions with you. So I would love to to kind of hear, firstly, what worked for you that last time? Because I think that's very important. And I know you felt a calling to go to the the meeting, the steps themselves have worked. But what was it that worked there? And then walk me through the journey that ultimately took you to a three-day layover in Tulsa, Oklahoma.
1: Right. So to to... I don't know why the time I got sober seventeen years ago was different than the other times I had tried. As I relapsed with three and a half years, close to three and a half years, the first time I got sober, I made a conscious choice to leave sobriety because I thought I could control drinking, and that I just would stay away from the drugs that were hard, and that were would I could clearly say that I could admit that they they had destroyed, you know, me in that in that moment, and so. I had tried to come back and forth for those three years, you know, sometimes I get a week sober. Sometimes I get close to a month. Maybe I've been, I think I even got a month chip, but something inevitably would always bring me back out where there was a, uh, some kind of, there's always drama and tragedy in any time you're going in and out. So that could look like a cell phone bill. My cell phone would get disconnected and I'd get the fuckets and I'm just like, ah, oh, fuck it. I'm I can't. And I'd get high. And I try to figure a lot of stuff out while I was high. Methamphetamines for a guy who has a scattered brain and ADD and, and really hard to focus gives me complete laser-like focus. And I felt like by doing those drugs, that drug, that I was helping myself and solving a problem, even if it was costing me mentally and physically, uh, I thought I could get ahead if I could just do this. And the deal I would make to myself was like, I'll just do this for another week, clean up my house. I mean, if I look around my house right now, it's a nightmare. I live at the corner unit at a historic hotel in the, in the, with, what do you call windows? I don't know. Anyway, a beautiful spot, but my, I, my shit looks like my desktop on my laptop, which is like shit all over the place because I'm constantly creating, juggling. I'm going back and forth to the museum. So I thought if I could just do this drug that would help me clean up my own stuff, organize my bills, all of the housekeeping stuff, right? All of the clerical shit that I'm terrible at, that, that it would be worth it. And then I would just pull the rip cord and get out, get off the drug. And then I would then get clean. It never works that way. So it was always one more week, one more weekend, one more month. And then I'll get my shit together. But the time that I got sober this time, I was literally out of any options. I was dying inside and I literally was suicidal and homicidal homicidal because I was kind of staying also at an apartment a block away. And a lady that lived lower than us was giving us problems and, and that's a whole other long story. And I literally was like plotting her demise. And then there was part of me that was just like, I just should kill myself. Cause this is just gonna, I was afraid that I wasn't going to die anytime soon by doing the drugs that I was going to live to be 90 on my knees. And that was even worse than dying. And this guy called me in the right time. And my, my mindset was just like, fuck it, let's go. And I went and I, in that moment, I just said, I'm going to stay willing no matter what. And there's been a lot of no matter what's that have come up and I just keep on going. So that's that. I don't have a clear, there wasn't like a, you know, usually good sobriety starts with the God help me prayer. That's that simple. And I'm sure I said, God help me in that, that thing because I needed it. Um, and then what happens is as I get clean, I take an old idea, which is La Coca Nostra, and I put it back together. Um, La Coca nostra was something that in a nutshell the DJ from House of Pain we remained friends while me and Everlast remained estranged at that time and he had a le- he had a label deal at Geffen and he was looking for acts and I used to meet a lot of people because I was always outgoing and on the scene and I met a kid from Boston named Slane who was an incredible talent and uh he reminded me like of what I first saw when I saw Everlast doing his thing I was like this guy is like a, a level above the levels that we know in our, in our scene. And I thought I'd bring him to lethal to make a record. And I also had met another kid from the Bronx and then lethal was working with another rapper and we decided instead of making three records with three solo artists, maybe we could put the three of those guys together and make one record. And two of them ended up staying in that group. Uh, we started adding people to it. They asked me if I would join as like the hype man and the creative director, since I had like you know come up with the name and the logo. And I was like, absolutely. And Lethal would become the DJ, and then we, we recruited Ill Bill from um, uh, Nonfiction, who was a, a fan of his work as well. And in the eleventh hour on Facebook, Everlast reached out to me the first time in a decade, saying, "I, I love your new group." I want to get down with it. And I thought, okay, well, shit, this is weird. But I was, you know, I was like, okay, you know, part of me was the validation that he'd just come out of the blue, you know, wanted to be down with it. And part of me was uh, a little worried, you know, that what what is what is the true cost of this thing? Uh, Cause I had been burned by him before, as far as, you know, him walking away from a group and leaving me high and dry um, and not being concerned with whatever became of my life after he walked out, knowing that it would cost me. And all of us, really, he didn't seem to care about that. So I was, you know, like a, I felt like the prodigal son was trying to come home. And he, I said, yeah, I'd love to do it. We'd love to do a song with you. He goes, no, nah, I want to join the group. So I asked El Bill and he was like, he was he was like on the fence, too. He was like, well, fuck it. The guy can write hits. So let's do it. So we made the deal and he came in the group and we started touring. And the first tour we went on, we were an opening act for the Cottonmouth Kings. who were signed to the same label that we ended up signing to. And it ended us up on a three-day layover. We played a show here with, at the Canes Ballroom, which is a historic, uh, old-school, cowboy, uh, Western, swing-dancing, legendary spot. The Sex Pistols played here and Everybody Under the Sun, but then notably, the Sex Pistols' second-to-last show ever in the US on their first and only tour of the US at, you know, on the original run. Um, It brought me here, and I realized when I was here that my favorite movie and book was uh, filmed and written here, which was The Outsiders. And so on my day off, I ended up hiring a cab to uh, take me around looking for these locations. And I was able to find the drive-in from the movie, the park from the movie, and by finding the park, I found the house. And uh, it was literally, to me, at the time, I may have had five years sober. Uh, I had just bought a new point-and-click camera. And I was highly caffeinated, as always. And I just I thought, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Like, Tulsa looked like Tulsa looked in the movie, which was filmed in 82, but was supposed to be portraying 67. And it was literally like, the, I, I might as well have been on the back lot of, like, Universal Studios to a, a set that it was just still up from the 80s. Because it was so realistic and so just like it was in the movies that I, I, I thought almost that I died and went to heaven. And uh, by the time I get to the house and start taking photos, I look down and there's a for sale sign. So when I get back to the hotel, I look it up and they want $42,000 for that house. I was shocked. One, I was shocked that it was still on earth. Two, I was shocked that it was for sale. And three, how cheap it was. Because in L.A., you couldn't buy a house for $42,000 since, I don't know, the 30s, 40s, the 50s. Who knows? A long time is all I'm trying to say. And as much as I was intrigued by it, I thought, man, I don't know anything about Tulsa. And I have no business. I, I was probably worth at best at that time, maybe $30,000. So I would have had to come up with another $12,000 just to buy the house. And although it was a, it would have been a smart investment because it was a house, I just didn't know anything about Tulsa. And I lived in Beverly Hills, California in a nice little apartment. So I thought, be careful, Danny. Um, what ends up happening, i become obsessed with the place. I start doing a lot of urban exploring on that tour which was a new concept. Uh, The the convergence of having a a smartphone, a tour bus with internet access, and Google uh, became like a way for me to use that tour bus because I was the only dude sober on that tour. So every time we'd pull into town, they were heading for the hotel to sleep it off. And I was heading out to find any type of point of interest from anything that was pop culture, uh, you know, pop culturally, relevant to me. So if I was in um, Minneapolis, I'm looking for Purple Rain, uh, you know, I'm looking for locations for Purple Rain or Mary Tyler Moore show or whatever. If I'm in Atlanta, I'm looking for the place that the Sex Pistols played on that first tour. I'm looking for anything that would have been, you know, something that I could take an old photo uh, off the internet and then mash it with a new photo and put that online. And in doing so, this is how I meet Nako Nolan uh the the former n y p d now currently l a p d detective and we hit it off like that. We start this thing called Delta Bravo urban exploration team, and in a nutshell, all we are is just self appointed um pop culture detectives anything that i that that strikes my interest from the past i'll freeze frame it i'll take a screen grab of it, and I'll go now where was this baseball field from from the bad news bears or where was this dugout from Fast Times or Ridgemont High or where whatever your thing is album covers where's the LL Cool J album cover where he's on his Jaguar leaning on the school fence and I found out it was in St. Albans Queens at his high school and I went back to that high school when I was in New York and I matched up the photo and I took the exact photo and then I put I superimposed them together in Photoshop and I posted them online for fun and I started to attract a lot of people like-minded and we we still do it. It's still a, it's still a real thing on Facebook, and uh, it's got I'm gonna guess you know a couple hundred members, but a couple I'd say 20 people religiously, constantly, always producing content, looking for locations. And it was just a fun, clean hobby that anybody could basically do. There's no buy-in. There's no it's not like you have to have anything to qualify or to be in the team. You just say you're in, and you post the photos, and you tag them with the tag, and you're done. And what happens is it it takes me across the U.S. because at the time, you know, we did La Cocoa Nostra for a couple of years and then it kind of fizzled out for a million different reasons. Um, And I I was just talking about this yesterday, man. I said, you know what, if I'm going to be time, uh, if I'm going to be cash poor, then I can look at it as also being time rich. And I said, you know, I, I barely have enough to get by, but I have all this free time and I can either sit around and complain that I don't have any opportunities to make money right now, or I can use this downtime to do something that I'm passionate about and that I love and just take a break and do my thing. And so what I did was just that. I started to just scratch up enough gas money and enough, you know, the files of the things I was looking for. And my wife would be at work and I would just go out on the day. Sometimes i grab Nako on his days off. Sometimes i grab other people. So a lot of times I went alone because everybody actually was actually working a real job. And I started to explore all of the things that were like, you know, interest of interest to me and a million things that weren't of interest that were maybe interesting to Nako or other people. And then it became this like lifelong passionate uh, project that we do. There's no end to it. There's no end game to it. It's really to experience life and to enjoy life and to kind of get a, uh, an end to like where was that film where was that shot taken now we know and now it's shared collective information for other fans to go see and what happened is i kept bringing me through tulsa oklahoma i realized that i didn't have to fly anywhere i could drive this old cop car that i bought uh i bought a retired uh you could do this in the states you could once they get rid of the old fleet they can they sell it at auction and you can get a cheap uh all blacked out unmarked cop car and driving around and people don't know at the time, people didn't know if you were really a cop or not, which makes great for exploring because nobody wants to mess with you when you're at locations. And when I stayed at the cheap hotels that I stayed at, uh, nobody messed with my car because they didn't know if it was a cop car or not. And I started to just go across the U.S. a lot of times by myself and I would always make it to Tulsa. So it was a two day trip from LA and I would always look at this house. And by five years of doing this, I, I, I started to get super worried. I, I was worried, and rightfully so, that the Habitat for Humanity, which is an organization that builds affordable houses in bad neighborhoods for people who wouldn't qualify for normal loans. And I'm a fan of what they do per se, but I wasn't going to be a fan if they tore down the Outsiders' house. And they were going block for block. And every year there would be another block torn out and new hos- homes put in. And they were about a block away from the outsider's house when I thought, no, 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 this is not going to be good. They're going to mess around and tear this house down and not even know that it's an important piece of American history. And so that's when I started to get scared, and I got scared enough to find out who owned it. And I had a buddy of mine do the deal, and we ended up making a deal. I ended up buying the house for $15,000. It's a steal, but on the same token, when I got to the house, because I bought it sight unseen, when I finally drove back out to take possession of the house, uh, it was in such bad shape that everybody else told me, I don't know that it's savable. You might just, you might have just bought something that's a teardown, dude. And uh, I didn't have any more money to spend. Uh, I was in it for 20 grand at the time. I paid 15 for the house and I paid 5,000 for the tenants who were eight months behind in rent to leave and get to another spot, um, which was awesome. As I look back, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but there are many times where I was faux so homeless and had no money and nobody offered me five grand to fuck off and, and go somewhere else. So God bless. Um, But, and then I, you know, I I, I attribute again to my sobriety as a six foot six alpha male. I know nothing about restoring homes, nothing. And it's hard for me to say I need help, you know, but I figured out that, you know, I had been afraid of what people think of me for so long. And especially to not know with such a stigma, how the fuck do you not know how to do that? But I had to just get honest and say, I don't know the first thing about this. What I'm passionate about is the legacy, the story and the house, but I don't know how to restore this house. If you're interested, could you help me? And I, I asked for help and shockingly enough, which it seems to be the thing, if you ask for help, don't be surprised if the help shows up and the help did just that. And um, little by little this community surrounded me and, and whether it was gifts in kind, meaning they'd say, Hey man, that roof looks terrible. You want us to, we're a shingle company. We'll come out and fix the shingles or that thing is leaking into your fireplace. There was a, there was a chimney and it was leaking into the wood. They're like, Hey, you need to flash that. I don't know what flash that meant. You know, they knew what it meant. They'd come and flash the thing. And then, there was a million little things like that people would say hey man the grass is like atrocious it's up to your waist uh, after work me and my daughter will come and, and we'll mow your lawn i'm like who does that like this is something that i don't know have happened in la or new york and this is just being honest but in tulsa oklahoma they cared and little by little we started to repair that house and we got it back stabilized and then I, the job was to go through it and make it look like it did in the movie. Simultaneously, I'm going out trying to collect everything under the sun that pertains to the movie, The Outsiders. At the time, I had one poster when I bought the house. Uh, I'm proud to say we have the largest collection of Outsiders movie memorabilia, uh, screen-worn wardrobe, and the largest Outsiders book collection known to man here in Tulsa, Oklahoma at the Outsiders House Museum. And it was really just a a passion project that if, 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 if I wrote it and you read it, you'd think I was bullshitting you know, and this is, this the way life is. And it would take me another two hours to unpack all the things that happen, but I can tell you this. Um, and I tell this to school children that I get asked to speak a lot because the outsiders is mostly required reading for seventh graders. And they want me to come out and talk to the kids. And I always tell them who I am. I don't, I never, you know, I feel like they're old enough to understand, you know, that I'm damaged goods that has now, you know, found a way out. And, um, what I do tell them is this, I, I tell them that a good education, a good game plan, and the financial uh, uh, financials in order, when you embark on a project like this, that sometimes you're going to have no, not, 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 no real money, no real plan, but you're going to feel passionately about it. And instinctually, you're going to know that this is something for you. Jump in and do it anyway. The worst thing that happens is you fail and you learn. The best thing that happens, what happened for me was that we did the impossible. I had no real money after what I put to get in the door. The place was in a hundred times worse condition than I assumed it was in because I had saw it online on Zillow when they were trying to sell it five years prior. And I had nothing to show if I was going to make a museum anyway, except for one poster. And in the end of three and a half years, I had everything I wanted and then some because it's amazing what we can do when you're dedicated and you're passionate about it. And so I, I, if it's one kid that needs to hear that, so be it, you know what I mean? Because I, I need to know that. And, you know, I don't know how much you know about the author, but I'll just tell you that she wrote the outsiders when she was 15 and a half, she was failing English and got a D plus in creative writing or got a D plus in English and failed creative writing. One or the other, it was, that's very low marks for a student to write a, 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 International Classic. It has never been out of print in fifty-four years, and I heard, I'm i told it sold more on the fiftieth anniversary than all the years combined. I don't know how that works, but that's the story. So we're sticking to it. Um, she's still alive. She's the number one supporter of the museum financially and with donations of, of of collectibles. And you know, it's just it's it's amazing what happens when you when you just you get down and roll up your sleeves and get on into it. And I, 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 again, I have a ninth grade education. I have no idea on how to restore homes, but people, when I talked about what I wanted to do, they, 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 they heard my plea because they, they, they knew I was coming from the heart and speaking to their heart, not from head to head that I didn't have this budget. And you know, that I I was using, that I didn't have a plan for how it was going to happen. I just said, Hey, I love this book i love this movie and i think it would be a shame if this house gets erased off of the earth i think we can do something better with it and turn it into a museum and that fans from around the world can come see what this little girl at 15 and a half did by writing her book and the effect that it had on all of us and people said fuck yeah i understand it i'm going to help you and everybody from jack white donated 30 grand uh when i ran into billy idol he was playing here as a kid Young kid, Billy Idol was my everything. I wanted to be Billy Idol so bad it hurt. I went to see Billy. He said, come on back, uh, come in the dressing room. He said, how's the house? I said, the house? He said, the outsider's house, mate. I said, you know about the house? How do you know about the house? He's like, come on, mate. I said. He said, I heard Jack gave you 30 grand. I said, yeah. I go, damn, so you do know about the house. He goes, I'd like to give you something too. I go, you would? He goes, yeah, not 30 grand, but I'm going to give you something. So he gave me a nice little check. I tell you that to tell you, man, my mind explodes when there's a million little stories like this. But the fact that like the 13 year old me who went to see The Outsiders and fell in love with this movie because I saw my story being told for the first time on screen in a different era, in a different neighborhood or in different, you know, uh, aesthetics, but the same feelings of disconnecting, finding your tribe outside of the house that you didn't find at home and sticking together at all costs. And to think that, 30 years later or 35 years later that I would end up buying the house from the movie and that Billy Idol would give me a check and the author would give me $35,000 and some stuff from her personal collection. And her friendship is what means more to me than all of that. And there's a hundred, if not a thousand stories just like it from anonymous people that did even more miraculous stuff, but I'd be here all day. But the takeaway from all of this is, is that, you know, I saw an opportunity that maybe nobody else saw at the time. I felt very strongly about it. And I was willing to roll the dice because what did I have to lose at that point? And it was already close to being, you know, out of money, but I, I, greater than being out of money would have been to, to save what little money I had and then watch that house get destroyed. And without a plan and without a budget, I was able to ask for help and the help showed up. And that's powerful stuff for me, man. I'm not going to say that that's going to happen in every project I do or any project that you may do or may may never happen, but it has happened. And every time I share the story, people say, yeah, I've had a similar situation that happened or this is good information. Maybe that it gives somebody the confidence to try something because again, what's the worst that could happen? So I had a little less, you know, 20 grand less than I had when I started, which I can make that up somehow. Eventually, it's not going to kill me. And I would have had a good lesson of, hey man, next time you need this, that, and the third. But it worked out the way, uh, it worked out better than I could have ever imagined. And it's given me, it's fulfilled me in a way that the house of pain could have never done. And I'll end with this, you know, being sober, when you work a program, the 12-step program, the last three steps are about giving back. It's trust God, clean house, work with others. And I think, that my higher power, who I choose to call God, understood that I wasn't gonna do the kind of service that I equate service in being, but that I could be a very good service to the community at large here by doing the Outsiders House Museum and making sure that I spend every day making sure that that museum stays open, that it stays constantly uh, promoted in the right way, and that I actively collect so that I can share a, a shared experience of her story The story of Tulsa surrounding me and putting me up on high and helping me complete this and what that looks like when you're sober, when you're passionate and when you're when you're humble to ask for help. Great things can happen, at least for a guy like me who was suffering from alcoholism and drug addiction and a million other things uh, that that it's pretty miraculous. So I think it's a it's a. For me, it's a redemption story. My own story is a redemption story. And I think there's hope in my story when I talk to other people about it and they feel that and it inspires people to maybe do stuff similar or uh, just a good takeaway of like, you know, everybody likes to see a a feel good story. And this is the feel good story of the last few years in Tulsa, you know? So it's been good. I've been here for five years. I'm never leaving. Uh, And I feel like the smartest guy who ever left Los Angeles and My biggest fear is coming here that you can stand still in Los Angeles and the world will come to you because we have such great circulation of people traveling to see Los Angeles. But ironically enough, every month, if not, you know, two or three, five people from my past or people that I always wanted to meet are passing through or working here or just playing here or whatever. So every month I've got somebody I got somebody right now from L.A. who's visiting for the first time just based off of my photos who I knew. And I've been taking him around, and I have a band you may know, and they might, I think it's secret that they're here, but your podcast, the Dropkick Murphys are here recording at the church studios for a week. And uh, I'm talking to Ken Casey, you know, and I'm gonna show him around and give him the tour. And every month it's something like that. Someone's playing Kane's Ballroom, someone's playing the BOK Center, uh, somebody's coming from East Coast to West Coast, driving through, and they wanna see Tulsa. And so I've been blessed to have the people in my life coming through and all kinds of people that I never thought would make it to Tulsa coming through. And it's just been a, again, I, sometimes I got to pinch myself to, that, that this, this has all uh, happened. And now, that now uh, it gets real because now I got to make sure not to fuck it all up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the pressure's on.
0: <laughs> well, I mean that's such a powerful story to hear and especially powerful. Like a lot of people have, Kind of rebirth stories and they themselves are incredible but not a lot of people have i i had achieved everything that you're told on television will make you happy Story, a contrasting story i had the fame the cars the girls i had all this stuff i was adored i was on mtv when it played music for example a long time yes. ago <laughs> yes, um, and then you have this and then what truly brought you happiness was and you touched on the word tribe finding that tribe finding that purpose seeing that yeah. community does exist and people do give a shit they just be need. they just need to be led and be given a task and that's what i've seen over and over again the narrative of people are horrible yes there are some shitbags in the world there's no question but i think ultimately people are good but right now i mean we you know without getting political there's very little leadership from left right whatever you know these these people are not our role models by any means so when they especially in the community when in your own town you could hands you know you can literally touch a project that you see then makes a difference That not only is bonding, but I think it's healing. And over and over again, the people that come out of whatever dark place they were in, that one of the most healing elements is altruism, is being able to give back. And that's the true purpose, I think, that ultimately heals so many people that were in pain.
1: You're absolutely right. And you know what? It's like doing a concert. If you're in a show and the crowd's all got their iPhones in your face and they're standing still, it's a tough hour and change, right? But if the crowd is wilding out and they're getting into it, it makes it's reciprocal energy. So what I give at the house has been given back to me in, in in double, triple, whatever. And then the word that you also touched on, which is super important to me, and I realized it when I had been here for a couple of years, I go, I finally have a purpose, like a true purpose. And I didn't have, the house of pain didn't have a purpose. My purpose had been served the second Eric said, I'm going to everlasting life, let's make a band. He took the wheel from there. I had done the logo, the the, the style of it, the, the, the name of it was all mine and the Irish-centric shit was who I was. But after that, it was like I was in a car while he was driving and when he wanted to stop and pull over. So my purpose was just to do what he said to keep this thing going. And when it was all said and done, I couldn't recreate the magic without him. And I was left uh, really on the side of the road not knowing what to do. And that's a real powerless, like, sad, like, state of mind to be in where you feel like you know uh, for the rest of my life and everybody expects me to go make a rap record or do whatever whatever so it took me a long time to come out the other side of that to have a real purpose and my purpose is this is like I said that every day that the house is not open is a in my book a, a day that could be better because we we do friday saturday and sunday we're open to the public and we do monday through thursday for private tours or school tours but i also do a 12-step meeting at the house uh we do events at the house and i just got an order today somebody wants to do a, a wedding at the house which is great i'm looking forward to but i want to use i use the, the the house as a community property and i feel like the many events we can put there the better and uh, it gives me a purpose. Like I said, my purpose is to make sure that that is main, maintained and in tip-top shape, and that I constantly are am on the lookout for new and exciting uh, items that may pop up on the market or discover other ways to you know dig out collections. And uh, yeah, it's it's it, I couldn't have planned it better. And I'm glad it just it just happened the way it was supposed to happen for me. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm the most I stay in gratitude every day. There's, there's no bad days. There's just days that could've, I could have done something a little bit better or could have just went a little bit better. But it, it's, I feel good, like I said, to be on the other side of this thing and to finally have found my purpose, my true purpose, which is this. So.
0: Well, it's funny as well because I remember watching the film when I was a kid and I'm forty eight now, I just had to help my son through his English project about a year ago now, while well, he worked through the book. Now the way they analyzed it, I I was completely useless to him <laughs> some of the questions <laughs> that they were breaking down. But, you know, so there I've I've had that multi generational kind of view with the story. Um just a complete tangent for a moment. I just there's a place, um uh a concert Welcome to Rockville every year. Cypress Hill's actually played a couple of times, I've seen them, but the Foo Fighters, tragically, Taylor was there. This was a couple of years ago now. They did a set with Billy Idol one of the best fucking concerts I've ever seen uh, in my sure. entire life. Cause, cause Billy came on John Travolta was backstage. He came on to be just, just waved, but, um, he's been on the awesome. show too, but the, John the Travolta. Yes. Yeah. He came on. He's yeah. actually, he's, he's local. He lives here in Ocala. So yeah, he's, uh, you know, kind of, kind of like you are in, in Tulsa, as far as being invested in the community you live in, rather than just kind of hiding in a house. He's, love, he's very I, much so. You I see love him.
1: everything about John Travolta as a kid he was the, the the Brooklyn archetypal character of like between Vinnie Bob Marino and, and, uh, and uh, what's his name staying, uh, in staying in Saturday Night Fever, uh, Monero, Tony Monero. I mean, it was like a, a God amongst men as a kid. I saw that movie. My mother took me to it and other people in the neighborhood cursed my mother for bringing a kid at 12 years old or 10 years old to see the movie. But she loved that, that she's, you know, she used to dance in Brooklyn. So that was her era that they're portraying. But yeah, I didn't know that that's, I, listen, I, I think if I 'm not mistaken, Taylor died of an overdose or sorry, drug I, overdose. I
0: believe so, yeah, at first they were talking about um I think you know they had chest pain, but I think from what I understood what I read, the toxicology, there was a whole cocktail, yeah. and, and you know, and I know even if you had chest pain, it was probably from you know yeah, the, the, yeah. The, the, what's in, in your body yeah.
1: Yeah. of course, and you know what that's it's, it's so super unfortunate. I, I can share uh, we were doing a festival it had to be the late nineties with house of pain. And I, I don't remember where it was, but I was standing on stage uh, after our set to see Alanis set. and she was all the rage. So whatever year that, you know, you ought to know song came out, that was the year, maybe 95, 94. I don't know. And I was, you know, because I had my like, laminate and we were probably coming on after, or before. I don't remember, but I was standing there and it didn't take 30 seconds for me to go. Who cares about Alana Morset? Who the fuck is this drummer? And where's this guy coming from? So that's where he started originally, playing drums for her, and he had fans on him, and his hair was flailing like he's riding a motorcycle, and he was just like he was killing it. And I'm a, a super fan of drumming. If 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 I could do my childhood over again, I begged my mother for a drum set. My cousin had a drum set. I was obsessed with Ace Frehley and Peter Crisp, but I always wanted to be a drummer. And so anytime I see a band, if the drummer Ain't the shit. I'm out. <laughs> and then he joined the Foo Fighters, which was great. But I mean, that's another you know unfortunate. Like he had everything. He had everything. And addiction is a is a tricky bitch, man. I've watched people with twenty something years relapse. Uh, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. I mean, dude was a staple in the community, doing all the right things until you know. And I. God, this, that's why, I don't, that's why I don't fuck around. I'm sure he didn't either. And that's why all I'm guaranteed is today. You know what? And that's the one day at a time concept. Yesterday is history. Tomorrow's a mystery. And I love to fuck with both. Oh, I'm not going to get all the things I need tomorrow. Or shit, if I just would have went left yesterday, I would have ended up where I needed to be. I get so caught up in the before and afters that I miss the beauty of today. And all we have right now is today. Today I'm sober. Today I have enough money to get through the day. I have a beautiful little dog in my lap. I, I, could, I have a refrigerator full of food. I got coffee at the ready. I mean, I have so many things to be grateful. Hot shower, good views, w- really n- no complaints. I can find a lot of stuff to complain about the, the, the tax rate, the gas prices, the everything. Uh, but so what? Everybody has to deal with that shit. I, 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 have, I, I may sound like a, you know, I don't know what I sound like, but it's true, man. It's the simple things now that I used to, take for granted that are everything to me and i have really no complaints other than that it's up to me to go out and and you know do whatever i want to do and 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 build it into something that i want to see it to you know if that makes sense you know
0: yeah absolutely though it does now i want to ask you one question and go to some closing questions so i can let you go but just one kind of interesting again going going back on the instagram a little bit I saw that one of the people that you had visit the house was Matt Dillon, obviously someone that you, mm-hmm. you know, related to when you were watching the film, you know, 40 years prior. So what was that like seeing, you know, as someone who you had basically been moved by as in his performance? And then what was his perception or experience of going back into the house that he was acting in all those years ago?
1: Right. So, I mean, it's, I've said it a million times in every interview. I think that they've asked, I definitely... Want to be Matt Dillon so bad it hurt. That that character, Dallas Winston, is who I try to emulate. His toughness and between him and and Ralph Macho's character, Johnny Cade, is where the the center would probably be more, most accurate. You know, I can relate to Johnny's pain and his feeling. You know, vulnerable and and emotional about you know, but smart enough to hide it well like Dally did, and tough enough to to you know to to do something about it. I'd always hoped that he would come Um, early on when I first bought the house. It was kind of a secret. And all of a sudden I get a, because I have a blue check on Instagram, when somebody else with the blue check follows, it notifies you. Same with Twitter. And all of a sudden it says, boom, boom. Like, whoa. He's like, Matt Dillon's following you. I'm like, what? I thought it can't be real, right? But he blue check. And then all of a sudden I get this text from him he says listen i heard you about the house good good shit if you ever want to if you if susie's still in tulsa and if you ever want to talk to her let me know i can put you in contact i said brother you have no idea how much this means to me i said i'm i'm in touch with susie actually and i said and he's and he said uh, in the text, he said, if there's anything you ever need, and I said, hey, I, first thing I want to know is, uh, do you still have the the the, the St. Christopher medallion and the and the, and the the skull ring? And he's like, oh, shit, man, that's been forever. I don't know where those are, but uh, if I ever find them, I'll let you know. And I said, look, we're going to do a fundraiser. I'm going to keep you abreast of all of the shit we do. I never want to lean on you too hard. So if I do, please forgive me. But I said, I'll, you know, you have a standing invitation to everything we do. And that was five years ago. We've done a few events. I've invited him. Uh, he replied back, hey, I'm on a movie right now out in, he did one called the, the house that Jack built. I think he was in Sweden or something at the time. The following year, he was like, it's just, uh, I'm in Italy. He was always, it was just the timing was never right. And then I would send him some stuff and he just didn't respond, which was like, all right, you know, busy guy, get it. And then randomly, somebody posted that he was going to do a Q&A in Oklahoma City for some art show hoping that he would see the museum and it wasn't anybody in my camp. Uh she's a fan of the outsiders and and well known amongst outsiders fans, but I didn't get too excited because again, the higher the expectations, the lower the serenity and I I just didn't want to set myself up for disappointment. And when I first bought the house, man, there was a lot of questions like why doesn't Tom Cruise just give you a million dollars to do this and just you'd be st- you know. And I'm like that that's not how life works. And, and if I had those expectations and none of the stars showed up from the movie, this house still had to be a sight to behold regardless of their involvement. Otherwise, what am I building? I'm building another trap like House of Pain where if Everlast leaves, we have an empty shell of a car that has no engine, right? So I didn't want to build a museum that was contingent on celebrities from the movie showing up all the time to make you want to come see it. So that was already a given. So the following day, uh, I get a text from SD Hinton. She said, listen, I'm, I'm, um, I'm so happy. I could cry. Matt's coming and he's going to take me to lunch. And then he wants to see the house. I was like, fantastic. She says, I hope you're in town. I said, "Oh, well, I'm in town. I'll be there. And then I looked at my Instagram. He's like, Hey brother, I'm in Oklahoma city. I'm coming to Tulsa tomorrow. I'd love to see the house. I said, yep. I just talked to Susie. I'll be there with bells on. So I got there the morning at nine and 9am and we waited. He finally showed up at four o'clock. He came in, uh, gracious to all of us. He said, Danny, I got to be honest with you. I'd never been in the house, so I don't have any, I don't have any memories of being in the house because I don't think I was ever in the house. I was, my scene was on the fence in front of the house. My scene was on the lawn on the side of the house and in the back of the house. So I don't know if he knew what to expect, but he walked in he was like, Oh shit. You know? And then, you know, we just kind of watched him and did this thing. I knew he was excited and, and, and was feeling it. Once he pulled out his cell phone and started to take photos of it uh that he was like oh shit i think i'm i'm pretty sure it exceeded his expectations and i've done my best to to pack that thing chock full of just everything you could imagine that with the outsiders uh, from from day one till now um there's a lot to chew on in there and by the time we got him out of the house and into the gift store behind it and then he realized that his leather jacket was back there he was super excited and he left with the big ass gift bag so that's also good too because some people don't want no they're like it was cool but i don't need anything you know which i understand i don't take stuff from people if if i'm not gonna wear it whatever whatever but he was like he had the beanies on and give him t-shirts you get one from his cousin get one from his older brother whatever whatever made me feel good to that he didn't leave empty-handed and then uh yeah i had a photographer there and i told him listen this guy's sitting in his car but i'll send him home if you feel uncomfortable or this is not cool he said you know if he's good enough for you he's good enough for me And so i brought my my buddy uh he documented it all and then i was able to tell the news when he left he didn't say anything about the news so i didn't want to have them waiting in the bushes either but they got good they got good photos from us and uh you know it was fantastic that he came back and that he enjoyed it that being said will he be back next week no Will he be back in three weeks? We don't know. If we if we can get him to come back for an event, I'd love to do something where we could watch the movie, he can do a and a with me, and we could, you know, raise money and pay him a, little, a nice little chunk of change and make a little money for the museum. Uh, all in due time, we'll know. But at the end of the day, the museum, even if nobody ever showed up celebrity-wise, it's a, it's a, it's a sight to behold. That being said, almost every week, we get a celebrity like... Uh, you know, between Leonardo DiCaprio, the uh, Green Day, uh, uh, all the other cast from Killing on the Flower Moons. I've had every band under the sun that's come through Tulsa just about. Today I was supposed to meet the Dropkicks, but he had to run to the studio quicker. I had Al Bar from the Dropkick Murphys the last time they were on tour. He wore the shirt on a live event that they did during COVID at a boxing match, singing their song. Uh, it's everybody in our age group, they grew up loving this. And then I guess I can end with this. When I made this thing, I had no real plan of what it was going to be or how it was going to get done. But I thought I was building a museum for people like me and you, some aging greasers who had an affinity for tough guys, leather jackets, and switchblades. What ended up happening is I built a family museum. And the driving force behind it is usually the seventh grade students that have just finished reading the book or about to read the book, just like their older brother and sister did, just like their parents did. And a lot of them, if they're local, they remember when Coppola came here and they filmed both the Outsiders then Rumblefish. It's a very important part of their shared collective memory and, and history. But we get people from all over the US, mainly the, the surrounding states. They come from Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, Kansas, Missouri. I'm like, you just drove 14 hours. you're like, hell yeah, we did I said just to see the museum or you come for another no, just to see the museum. And so the fan base every year is producing new crop of fans because the book is required reading globally. It's not even a local thing. It's, it's, uh, there's copies. That book has been printed in over 33 languages, man. So it's, it's, this book is incredible. Uh, it's important to Tulsa. It's important to Tulsa's history, but it's important to the, the it's the first time that book is that we can argue and there's no real answer. Uh, what, what first rapper started hip hop? Like what, what's the first record that started that? Or let's do rock. What's the first rock record? you're going to say a blues record or maybe this one. There's no true answer. If I ask you, what is the number one category in book sales to date? It's young adult literature. Who's the first person to start a young adult literature? I got the answer. It's S.C. Hinton with The Outsiders. It's is the first time in literary history that a 15 and a half year old, a teen, wrote about being a teen for teens. Prior to that, every book about Being a teen was written from people our age, (laughs) reflecting back on that era. She wrote it in that era, about that era, for her era. And that creates the young adult book category. It's not some little poobah category. It is the number one category in book sales of all time. Um, And we know where that started in Tulsa, Oklahoma, from a student named Susan Eloise Hinton, so they asked her to change her name to something more ambiguous that guys didn't know it was a girl writing it because we wouldn't have read it probably at 15 had we known. Um, and there's just so many little things to chew on with this thing, but it, I never get tired of telling it. It never gets old to me. The fact that Coppola was involved, the fact that the librarian who had 100 of her students write to Coppola in 81 or 82, insisting him, that he looks at this and turns it into a movie, which he did just that. There's just so much. The stars that got Launched out of this, the careers that came out of this, with the Brat Pack, from Swayze to Dylan to Machio to Cruz, the 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 smallest part uh, becomes the biggest actor on the planet. There's just so much to love, and that a little girl, 15 and a half years old, was the impetus for all of this by writing her book, and it's a it's a time honored classic. And to be a a speckle of dust in this whole legacy is, is. something I just, I I can't overstate to you how important it is to me. And this is why I'm on my best behavior. (laughs) It's another reason. It's just just to stay right-sized and stay accountable because I'm one, I'm one altercation on the streets from ruining, you know, uh, there's, there's things that I can do. The old Danny can show up if I'm having a bad day and, and, and I'm frustrated or I haven't eaten and, and, or my sugar level drops Like, like who knows, and so uh, it's another thing that has been super precious to me. And I hope to never do anything to disgrace the author, the legacy, the anything. And I do my best to just, everything is above board. Everything is transparent and everything is from the heart, man. I don't even have to think about it. I just do and say my story, my truth, how this all happened and how important it is, and everything else is in God's hands. So,
0: Well, I mean, I can hear the passion. You know, it's, it's incredible. And, and like you said, the inception of the story and even, even the lens that she had as a 15-year-old girl, right? In, you know, what some would argue more of a masculine perspective story. Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, it, it's amazing. And then it, absolutely. I mean, you look at all the faces on the original cast, you know, like, oh, my God, like all of them.
1: Amelia Lestervez, Diane, Diane Lane, Leif Garrett. He was the, actually the biggest star at the time because he was from the 70s where he was a rollover from that era so i was like wait a minute i already know who that guy is but i didn't really know i didn't have too much frame of reference for the rest of them until i did you know
0: yeah incredible well before i get to a couple of closing questions for people listening where where's the best place to find out about the museum where they can donate and then what about social media handles as well
1: Yeah. I mean, just the Outsiders House, any Google search will bring up all of the links, the OutsidersHouse.com, the Outsiders House Facebook, Outsiders House Museum, Twitter. It's all all easily searched. Uh, We can always use donations. We we run the back as a for-profit which is the merchandise and to the tours and then we have a nonprofit that uh, supplements school children a lot of these schools can't afford the bus or can't afford the tickets or can't afford the, the stuff so we uh, we raise money on the nonprofit side so if you donate it goes to the nonprofit. It does not go to the profit side and then we use it to subsidize schools uh and make it more affordable for them to to come here if not we comp the whole thing depending on how much we have uh, COVID kind of knocked out on the, on the head for a while. Cause it was, I didn't feel in a, during the pandemic to go out asking for money for this. It's a luxury thing for even schools to come see it. But uh, so far, so good. We have a lot of schools coming through and it's miraculous to see for me. I can't imagine. I wish I would have read it in seventh grade. I did not read it in seventh grade, but I wish I could have read it and enjoyed it for then. then to go see the movie, then to be able to, Take a field trip to the actual house that is not only a collectible itself and and in the movie, but the same collectible is the home of all the other great collectibles that are inside that house. And that's a Willy Wonka experience as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I'm glad that we can offer it to the kids of Tulsa. And and we had a tour two days ago come from three miles, three miles, three hours away in a place in Oklahoma I never heard. So I wouldn't even try to remember what she told me. Uh, I said, you guys drove how long? Three hours. I said, unreal. I was so happy. Like, they come all that way. That's a long way with the bus full of students, eighth graders these were. Uh, you know, I thought my, my old ass was already like, well, how, how many bathroom stops is that for, you know, like, <laughs> anyway. But the kids enjoy it, even if they don't know the first thing about the book or the movie, which they all do. But there are some. They Their interest gets peaked, and that there's all this cool greaser stuff from the what they think is, you know, eons ago but it's got that 50s and 60s vibe of anywhere usa and so there's always something for somebody to chew on in there so
0: brilliant well i just want to ask two closing questions the first one because i normally ask about books and films i think we've pretty much you know filled those two slots the outsiders the outsiders um so is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders military and associated professions of the world
1: I mean, maybe Ken Casey from, from Dropkick, Murphy's. I know he's, he's, he's a long-term sobriety. I know that, and this is from an outsider's perspective, all pun intended, I know that the Dropkicks didn't just have a meteoric rise to, 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 to fame. They started middle-class, working-class punk rock. And then with the, the release of Shipping Up to Boston and Gangs in New York, they Go through the roof, and they've been able to stay up there, which is fantastic. If there's any competition at the stadiums for a uh, for airtime on on songs that get the crowd hyped, uh, it's definitely the Dropkicks or, or or Jack White's songs that are you know in close running with Jump Around and We Will Rock You <laughs> from uh, from yeah from uh, Freddie Mercury from. Anyway, um, so he, he he because he's here now, and because I was just thinking, I think he'd be a great guest. Because and he also he 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 ran a pub for a long time. They own enough said McGreeves, which was like one of the oldest uh, Boston Red Sox uh, pub in Boston, 90 feet from Fenway. He's also got his hand in the boxing game, so he's got. And I think he even he runs a rehab or a fund that raises money. I think they do the Clotta Fund, which raises money for disadvantaged kids and sobriety and for other stuff so he he definitely uh, is on my mind for a reason and i think he'd be a great one i will see him at some point later today i will i'll mention it to him but i think also ask knocko because Naco is is plugged in with them as well way more than i am you know uh, I think he would be great for you. And then, what was the other question? Um, well,
0: actually, just to add to that, I had one of the band, um, Lee Forshner, who's the, kind of like their their other bagpipe player. So, when they tour, Lee is normally with He was a firefighter here in Florida and ended up being part of the band. So, I think he's mentioned Ken as well. So, that's someone I definitely need to yeah. reach out to. And
1: then, I know that the original singer, Mike McCulgan, he was on the fire department for a minute there, too. Uh, and then he started the Street Dog. So, but I think Ken would be a good one, man, because I mean, that's ken's band i don't care what anybody says i mean that and you know that that's not a secret that's his baby he's the tip of the spear and i think you know and and i never really i don't know i'm sure he's been on a on a a lot of them but i've never heard ken really speak he's actually speaking this sunday at a meeting that we do here he's going to be the speaker i asked him yesterday he's like yeah absolutely didn't even hesitate so i'm excited to hear a little bit more about the you know the behind the scenes story of him but i just coming off the top of my head i think that would be a great one for you
0: absolutely yeah and i think the, as, as uh i was talking to Noko is how we got connected my thing is as a as this kind of nucleus of this project with people being military and first responder and medical and you know like i saw boy soldiers and all these these crazy things the humanity is what connects us all and one thing is when i look back retroactively at the music scene is I would say that and the the acting uh, profession, when we lose people to addiction or suicide, there's, there used to be for a very long time, well, you know, it's what you get being a musician, being a rock, you know what I mean? And that's absolute bullshit. So you know, I, I'm really wanting to get some people from, you know, that kind of background industry as well, because we're all human beings. I wore a uniform as a firefighter, you know, you, you know, you were um, you know behind the guys holding the microphones you were kind of creating that entire stage for them so we've all got different professions but ultimately we're humans we we began as children and had our experience whatever that was and then that you know kind of catapulted us to positive negative and everything in between so yeah, i would love to get that and you know and, and bring that commonality in from from the kind of you know pseudo punk rock scene as well yeah man Brilliant. All right. Well, the very last question I heard you talk about, we'll touch on meditation for a second. So the very last one before I let you go, what do you do to decompress?
1: Um, I mean, there's a a few different methods. I mean, in the morning, I'm not perfect with it, but I I definitely pray, meditate, and write a gratitude list. And then during the day, there's a thing called HALT. It's an acronym. And and anytime I'm stressed out, I got to go, am I hungry, angry, lonely, or tired? Sometimes it's all. For. It could be horny too. I'm just kidding. Um, but when I ask myself those questions, like holy shit, I haven't eaten anything. I've taken six shots of espresso and ate a donut, and now my sugar's crashing, and I'm angry and irritable and discontent. And I'm like, shocker, you might want to like take a nap or eat something, go get a, you know, something that'll replenish uh, your. And so those are the things that I, I do. And then one from the program is is, is pause when agitated. It's like you try to not make any decisions in haste. Because as soon as I get upset, the snap decisions are the ones that have cost me the most. It's good to pause and just be like, dude, hold up. All right, let me think about this for a second and let let me cool down. Huh, huh, isn't that right a little bit? But yeah, that's it. I got my little adopted dog here. I thought I was going to foster him for one week and then I find a, someone who could take him. But now he's rich, stuck on each other, like glue. It's a good, great. Listen, life is good, man. When I just got out of my own way and then and, and just used to sort to participate in a way that was, you know, uh, different than I had been doing before. Like I said it about parenting and I haven't ever experienced that, but I, I had a good blueprint from just doing the opposite. I think of, you know, that seventies model that was going around in New York for a long time that I saw my, my life. Um, and, and, and yeah, I think from the life that I formerly led, I just do the absolute opposite. You know, there's a, there's a St. Francis prayer and you'll have to Google it because I don't want to botch it, but it's basically bringing what's missing. If there's despair, bring hope. If there's anger, bring love. If there's, you know, it's basically bringing opposite uh, action to what you don't like. And so it's easy for me to find fault in things. So what now, what, what can I bring to counterbalance that is what I try to do the most. Not always easy. And so with that, I'll, I'll end. I got to go uh, walk this dog and uh, take care of the rest of my day. But it's been a pleasure talking to you. Shout out to Nako Nolan. He's one of the most even keeled man's man, always there to help. I can't say enough good things about him. And he's a, he's a big influence on me too, man, because uh, we both started out big cheeseburger eating, you know, shit talking New Yorkers. And in the last shit it's been eight years since i've known him probably maybe more uh i've watched the growth in him in ways that i just we both never wore shorts i'm wearing shorts right now he's wearing shorts we used to clown on dudes with flip-flops he's rocking flip-flops he's doing jujitsu he even bought a fucking surfboard for christ's sakes. i mean that's far from who we you know we were like you know jaded new yorkers talking shit ba and it's just so great to watch people do what they say they're going to do and grow. Cause I noticed it before they might notice the growth in themselves. And that's just the same thing for me. People tell me, Danny, it's so impressive to see what you're doing. I don't even notice cause I'm just doing what I'm doing. And you know, it's like that. So shout out to Nako Nolan. Great talking to you, my man. I will put it in, in Ken's ear today, but also tell, tell knock, cause he's got a, he's got a direct connect with them. And, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, you know one day coming and meeting you and uh, all hanging out. Maybe me you and not nah can get a get together and uh, chop it up some more.